Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. Today we've got a packed show for you as, first of all, we dig deep into Dan Teen's changes to the fees that we all pay for different courses, whether it be STEM or arts. What does this mean for universities? And this is finally a chance to change the incentives faced by academics in university in Australia. We'll also be looking at cancel culture, which is one of those things that started in universities, but now seems to be taking over the whole of society as it loses its mind. But there are ways to fight back, and that's what we'll be talking about today. We'll also be talking about something the university should be doing, but aren't necessarily, which is enlivening the great books and explaining why they are so important for our civilization and what we pass on to the next generation as we uh, give you a preview of a brand new IPA podcast series. So hang around for that, please. And then in our usual books and culture segment, uh, we do actually have a couple of books, not just the usual Netflix episodes. Uh, Chris Berg will be talking about uh, John Bolton's new book, The Room Where It Happened, which is all about inside the Trump White House. Uh, I'll be talking about a book called uh, War for Eternity, which is about Steve Bannon, uh, Trump's erstwhile uh, advisor and campaign manager, and the uh, traditionalists, uh, the milieu from which Bannon emerged, which uh, have some very interesting ideas about uh, where we are in the arc of human history. Uh, and then uh, also uh, another three books in a row. What do you know? Um, the Spy and the Traitor, about Oleg Gordievsky, a new book by Ben McIntyre, uh, who specialises in that whole genre of spies and Cold War stuff. So uh, a ripper show for you today. Um, I'd like to introduce, first of all, my panellists. Um, suitably socially distancing in the uh, in his Melbourne bunker is uh, Dr Chris Berg. Chris, how are you? Really well, Scott. How are you? Good to see you there. And uh, for those... Uh, uh, attentive uh, listeners and viewers who always give you some stick for it. Good to see there's a big bookcase there just to prove how smart you are, Chris. There, there is. Otherwise, I would have no other way to demonstrate it. <laughs> Very good. Uh, great. Uh, Chris is, of course, my co-host and um, uh, adjunct at the IPA and a resident at RMIT University. I also have with me in the studio... Dr. Bella Debrera. Thank you. Lovely to be here. It's great to have you back. Uh, Bella, of course, uh, runs our uh, Foundations of Western Civilization program. And then uh, we've got a lot of culture in today's show, Bella. And the more they attack the culture, more the more we're going to talk about it. I Absolutely. Think. Yes. And you, you'll be talking about your new podcast yes. with, um, with Greg Sheridan. Yes. It's very so, exciting. Uh, just a little tease there, but we'll <laughs> uh, explain that in a few minutes. Um, as I say, we, we are going to kick off. Um, the dust has now settled slightly on um, Dan Teen's uh, announcement that there is a whole new range of fee schedules and uh, uh, subsidies for students at Australia's universities. And uh, most notably, of course, fees for STEM courses came down and fees for humanities courses went up. This is either an anti-intellectual outrage or something that they should have done a long time ago and they just got what they deserved. Um, to give the devil its due, we're actually going to throw first to someone who actually works within the universities. Dr Berg, what's going on here? Sure. So um, as you say, earlier this month, Dan Tien, the Education Minister, gave a speech to the National Press Club announcing um, the government's higher education 
reforms. These are this is a really significant package. But just as context, of course, the sector is in an absolute freefall for the dual reasons of um, the halt to international travel and the coronavirus. Um, uh, lots of universities have massive revenue shortfalls. For instance, Melbourne University has a one billion dollar revenue shortfall projected over the next three years, but at the same time, and um, making this a lot more complicated, there's simultaneously expected to be just massive student demand domestically. So from domestic students from next year. So that's the context in which Dantian has announced these policies. The policy overall is a rebalancing of the amount that the government pays for degrees and the amount that the students are expected to pay through X. And it has been announced as a rebalance towards more job relevant choices and that sort of thing. The government hinted at the, the idea that it was an attack on the arts and humanities in favor of more practical degrees. In fact, that ends up being a lot more complicated, but we might actually just initially go to um, Bella to ask about this idea that should the government be focusing on making sure that students are doing more job relevant education, um, if if the government doesn't want to fund humanities as much as it does, is this does this have consequences for our society and culture? How do you think about just the fundamental choice that the government has posed in front of us? Well, I think I can see why the government wants wants to lead people away from the humanities because they. If 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 they if this projection of unemployment is 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 going to eventuate, then obviously they want people they want the young people to go straight into jobs rather than um, be unemployed again for another three or four years. But the, the way I look at it is that the humanities are <laughs> so terrible that why would anyone want to go and spend any money on studying? You know, it's the same thing. They're going to just get the the gender studies. They're going to get the Marxist stuff. They're going to get all the rubbish. It's a complete waste of money. So if I was a student, I certainly would be not paying the fourteen thousand. Is it fourteen thousand dollars a year now? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Fourteen thousand dollars a year to do gender studies, which is just which is just insane. So I can see why the government is 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 looking at these courses and saying, um, actually, you know. We need you to do something more. If you want to get a job and you want to get a useful job, you should focus on STEM. I can see why they're doing it. Whether it works or not is another matter. You know, a student's going to be so um, desperate to do anything because there's no jobs that they'll, they, they will st they will prepare, they will fork out that much for a humanities degree. I, and I don't know. I don't know. What do you think, Scott? Well, I mean, one of the things is I think uh, they probably still will. I mean, one of the, one of the things about uh, that kind of degree is that it. Um, uh, I suspect the socioeconomic makeup is uh, is that it is uh, from families and segments of society that can afford to pay for the most part. Mm. Um, that was the great lie of, of Whitlam making education free. It just benefited the, mm. the middle and upper middle class anyway. Um, I'm not so convinced about the vocational aspect because the sad thing is, Bella, there are lots of bullshit jobs for bullshit degrees. That's true. I mean, you, yeah, you come out with true. one of these degrees in gender studies, you can get a job with oh, the straight. Human Rights Commission. Yeah. You become an HR manager for, for a major corporation and you spend your life, you know, persecuting people. I mean, you know, there's lots of... Lots yeah, straight into HR, it's true. There are lots of crazy jobs. But I do wonder if those jobs are going to disappear over the next three years, if there'll be some I, kind of... Will there be some kind of uh, rebalancing of... of of what is really necessary in society. That, that's what I hope, that this might be some kind of trigger that... Yeah, and, I, and I'd like to come back. Um, Berg's about to jump in, but uh, I'd like to come back too. I think 
the, the, the hopeful sign for me is I think this will put a lot more power back in the hands of students. Mm. Uh, with the collapse of international students, the collapse of research, I don't think there's much of a role for research in the humanities anyway, um, because it's really about um, uh, that that should be reserved for, I think, an elite of thinkers and most people should be involved in passing on mm. uh, knowledge um, and opening up the minds of young people. Um, so if we can rebalance away from research towards teaching, towards teaching stuff that actually matters and not bullshit, um, uh, and if you're paying $14,000 a year, maybe you'll actually fight for that right. But Berg, what were you going to say? Yeah, look, um, so this is interesting. Um, and as you were mentioning that, so I've got, I've got a few points to make about whether this policy even does what it says on the label. But before that, I'm really uncomfortable with the way we think about labour shortages and skill shortages in this country. Um, and the idea that there's a group of people in the Department of Education who will decide what the future makeup of the labour force ought to look like. Mm. Um, it's uh, often Austrian economists uh, often say that, you know, we live in a free market economy except for the one most important commodity, which is money, which is managed by the government. Well, that's incomplete. It's both money and labour markets are completely planned economies. Yep. Um, the government decides how many immigrants we can have in which skill sector. Then apparently they think it's their role to decide whether there are too many art students or there are too many science or maths or architecture or whatever it is. Um, what we want, right, so, so, so abstracting away from all that, what we want is for... Um, the economy to be responsive to the demands of the labor market. We want students to be responding not to Dan Tian's personal preferences about whether we should be doing arts or not, but um, students responsive to market demand. Now, HEX, the system that we have that um, gives everybody a, a interest-free loan to do um, education actually does an approximation of that. Um, it, it, it isolates us all from the cost of the degree, but means that we make decisions about what degree to do, what degree to do based on an assessment about how much money we're going to earn in our lifetime um, uh, if we go into that certain field. Um, I'm, I'm really uncomfortable with this idea that we should be planning the job market. Um, and I'd be interested in your thoughts before I start ranting and raving about how nuts this actual policy is. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, well, that, that, that's true. I mean, there's, there's actually little evidence that um, uh, arts graduates have any, um, um, on average, much higher um, uh, unemployment rates um, or even lower wages after a period of time. I mean, I think gra graduates are one thing. Um, uh, coming out of university, I suspect, you know, people who are vocationally qualified like in engineers, accountants, IT, you probably could walk more into a job in which you are immediately valuable than is the case with the humanities. But I think over, over time that changes. And we do live in a knowledge society. You know, I'm a, um, uh, one of my heroes is Peter Drucker. I mean, he called it a long time ago. We live in a, a knowledge society and, and that's what the humanities um, is is made for in a way if you want to put it in a vocational lens. I mean, it's, it's meant to be about character and learning and civilization, but it's all it does actually equip you for working in a in a knowledge society. But I'm well, I think it would if it was pro properly taught. Exactly, and that, and that's what I'm completely conflicted about. Mm. I mean, I I did my arts degree um, 
in the 80s when it was it was on the cusp um, uh, the arts faculty at Melbourne University was literally on the turn they they chased Jeffrey Blaney out mm. um, uh, the, the the political science department had already been captured by sociologists and then it got captured by the um, uh, by the uh, French post-structuralists and the uh, the Parisian nonsense mm. machine um, over that and I was sort of there what you know watching it happen and 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 then it's been sort of downhill from then so it, it's like we know what the humanities could do um uh, but then it's turned into what your your research has shown bella and that's that's the frustration of uh, being out the government being able to provide an input but not get the output mm. that it wants or, or uh, as students as customers um, or students and their families, realistically, uh, for the most part, stu- as customers not being able to influence those universities and not having any power um, over saying, give us a course that actually does what it says on the box instead of just this indoctrination and nonsense. And um, so I'm, I'm completely conflicted. I'm also conflicted because I've got a child going through VCE who's interested in doing an arts degree and we've just been royally screwed. So that's <laughs> naked self-interest no, no, no. talking no, let, there. Let, so. let me give you the reason that your child has not been royally screwed in this case. <laughs> because the net effect of this policy is a massive increase, certainly a potential increase, in arts and humanities students in Australia across the board. Because we have been, and the government appears to be, confusing two things. So it is true that the under the TN policy, the students will be asked to pay a significantly larger amount through the HEC system for their degrees. Um, and also, simultaneously, the Commonwealth government is reducing the amount of funds that um, uh, it is going to contribute to those degrees. But... They are also at the same time raising the amount of money that the universities can charge for humanities degrees. So I'm looking at a chart that shows the amount of money available to the universities per student, per degree, per course um, after these proposed changes, if they go through. And history and philosophy subjects will be per student $2,500 richer. Now that tells me that they're going to get more money they're going to be more encouraged to bring students into those history degrees because, in fact, other degrees, those vocational ones, they go down. The university gets less money for nursing, engineering, science, agriculture, environmental studies, less money for those vocationally focused ones and more money for humanities and arts degrees. Now, if you're a rational university administrator, you will be funneling as many students as you possibly can into the arts and humanities provided the students, provided students actually want to take those subjects yeah look and and well well they might decide that they won't and and potentially um uh if it's suggested that they're they're not a valuable set of subjects then that's true but the university is going to be strongly incentivized to get them in there now maybe that works in 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 the interest of your research as well bella because that suggests that they'll try to make those more appealing to a broader cross-section of the university student population. But the policy itself, putting aside everything Dan Tian says what the policy is intended to do, this is a massive boost to humanities and the arts. In fact, so much so that um, uh, the once the um, education minister was told about that, <laughs> 
he he announced. You mean, you mean sorry, Chris, Chris, you mean once somebody pointed out to him that people and institutions respond to economic incentives. Precisely. This is nobody and, had actually and, thought about and, that up to that point. And how the heck system works <laughs> by isolating people from the cost of their degrees. Who knew? Which, Who which, knew? I mean, which, really. As a side point, isn't it terrifying that the Commonwealth Department of Education doesn't know how its banner policy functions, the basic economics of HECS? Nonetheless, this was pointed out um, uh, quite cleverly by a number of commentators, including um, uh, including Andrew Norton, who's now at the ANU. And now they've announced that, or now the education minister has announced that there's the higher education regulator is going to ensure that universities do not exploit humanities mm. students um, by by more, moving more, them away from providing the, the answer degree. to bad bad central planning is always more central planning. It's insane. It, it, it is an absolutely mad set of events. Now, the, the answer here, right, the actual answer is to expose degrees to market demand. Now, what that looks like is fee deregulation. The policy that Christopher Pine tried to run through a few years ago was completely shattered down by the sector. It makes a hell of a lot more sense now that the higher education industry is in a free fall financially because of the closing of international borders and the coronavirus. It's a, um, a completely different environment, but um, this sort of uh, Soviet-style planning system turns out it doesn't work, Scott. I no, don't know no. whether you knew. Who, this. who knew? Hey, by the way, <laughs> is um, I'm going to put you on the spot here, Dr. Berg. Is this a cap, or is it actually the schedule? Like, could a university actually charge less? Uh, yeah, they could charge less. It is a cap. Everybody charges up to the cap. So, um, but if there's that, that much margin you, in it, why not? Why not actually compete around? You know, why not charge again? a bit less and try and get more? Why, don't, why not do cheaper degrees? Yeah. Um, uh, you, they're just not that profitable. Is the answer to that? So there's not that much of a margin now. To what happens with these degrees is that they the teaching costs end up cross subsidising the research done by the universities. The universities do research because they want to be seen as more prestigious universities, then they can get more students and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, yeah, so they, get, yeah they want to get on the league of, table and it's yeah. all about that. That's the wrong yeah. thing. So, so there's a real cycle yeah. there. Um, and, and, and in fact, my colleagues and I at RMIT are working on a project trying to uncouple some of those incentives and try to understand them better than we think the sector does understand them at the moment. But that's that's how it functions. Now, in my view, if you've got to feed your regulation, then we would actually have that price competition. Um, we need to raise prices at least as high as people start charging less than the cap. We need to discover what the cost of a degree is. And, and in that sense, yes, we've moved away from the, William, uh, from the Whitlam model um, insofar as it's not completely free. And, and it's but we haven't moved away from it in making students respond to market demand for education, not just careers. Bella, do you think there's a scope there? Like, let's in in this nirvana of, of fee deregulation, where universities could they could charge less, they could charge more. Um, is that is that the environment in which an institution could say there's actually a, a market opportunity then to say, well, I might charge a bit more, but I might actually have an amazing humanities yeah. degree, a, a true liberal arts degree. I mean, any sensible humanities department now would be going, let's just let's just reassess what we're teaching. Um, and and let's let's offer students that something that no one else in the country is offering them. So what would that? And what, if what you were smart, you'd like? charge even less. So what would that arts? What would that arts degree? Well, it's like? going to be a, a, um, a let's not hate Western civilization degree. 
um, let's not talk about gender. Yeah, well, let's let's, let's, not, let's, let's find not talk out about it. race. Yeah, let's find out what that Western civilization is before we start yeah, hating on it. Yeah, <laughs> let's 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 give people context. Um, let's give them a, a, a foundation of um, what has come before us. Um, let's not just start in um, randomly in the twentieth century in a, a remote corner of Indonesia um, and looking at women's rights or. Uh, it's just, it's you know, the, we've been talking about this ad nauseum for the last mm. four or five years, and um, and you, it, this is a perfect market opportunity for someone to go yeah. to come to, to offer a better product. And and but uh, it is good to dwell because um, the one thing that everybody uses as a cliche, but it's actually true, is a humanities degree. You know, it is meant to be about challenging the way you think and 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 uh, looking. Um, looking at different perspectives on the world and developing the argument. So we all start from that proposition, mm. uh, but our contention is that then uh, the postmodernists uh, don't actually follow that because they actually say, well, and here, here is the way to think. And and so when we say Western civilization, it's not like um, it's three years of this, um, you know, wonderful march, no, march no. through history either. No. It's, yeah. it's, I mean, it's always... It's so rich. It was historically a bit. Yeah. But tend to, it tended to be in reverse, I think you you started with the foundations, mm. and then as you moved into sort of you know graduate studies, postdoctoral studies, you know it all started to break down a yeah. little bit. Yeah, you and, narrowed down. Yeah, yeah, and 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 you see the challenges to the narratives, and you get into mm. the historiography, you know, in your profession. Whereas now we've completely reversed it, and it's been reversed all the way back to primary yeah. school. Yeah, you know, yeah. you you will show the critique in primary school before you've actually mm. seen what the original mm. narrative was and you never get back to the original narrative that's that's uh, yeah and that, it's it's just well, um from your perspective um there's a bit of a tension here um in that uh we at the same time want our public policy to be designed to deal with you know pure market failures or to deal with productivity or something like that um and and on those grounds we fund degree programs um, uh, maybe there's some equity questions there and, and so forth. But on the other hand, the vision of the university that I think you share and I'm very sympathetic to is um, a, a, a sort of liberal arts, um, all-encompassing, um, or almost a romantic vision of what, what higher education and, and education in general can be. Should we be funding that at all? Is that something that, is that a desirable thing for us to raise taxes from otherwise hardworking people um, uh, to to fund, or how do you think through that the the role of government funding of education in that sense? Well, I found this podcast very helpful because I think what it what it's confirmed for me is um, admitting that this is um, that kind of degree. It is a romantic notion. It's uh, the rule of less is more does apply. So you probably got to admit that it's an elite activity. I don't mean that in a socioeconomic elite. I think the old model of um, high fees plus scholarships um, uh, was the better way of getting around that than a than a blanket subsidy, which just turned these things into degree factories and subsidised second rate in academics at second rate institutions to produce second rate degrees. Um, well, that came out pretty neatly. Um, uh, so. Uh, and the hope that I actually have, and so this is the window that I, um, I've been thinking about in terms of the TN reforms, is putting the power back to the students and those who are paying. If they are really going to pay, um, then let's push that model even further towards fee, fee deregulation, as you say, because that then actually creates the opportunity for 
um, uh, to reclaim some of that power, to get it away from this um, uh, BS um, uh, uh, research mill, which you know has applications in things like IT and science, but not necessarily in the humanities. So, uh, yeah, I think it's it's an elite, smaller opportunity. I mean, the, the alternative, I, I guess, is other pe- brave people are trying to do it, like Campion College. Mm. Um, uh, Bella, tell us, tell us about Campion College. So Campion does offer this um, Berg's romantic idea of a degree, um, and it seems to work. Um, out, out in Toongabbie in, in, in New yeah, South Wales? Yeah, and it not some, seems to work. It does work because we know the graduates um, and they're um, incredibly knowledgeable and very well adjusted and very well balanced. And you can see the effect that a proper liberal arts degree has on the formation of, a, of an individual, of a, of a younger person. Um, and it would be very easy for uh, University of Sydney or New South Wales or Melbourne or, or, or anywhere to, to run to run this, but we've seen them rejecting... Even as an option. Yeah, even as an option, just 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 test one course and see how it goes. Not, not just very easy, quite literally have been offered to them. <laughs> yes, has been offered to them on a plate and they still refused. Um, yeah. So, and, you know, I just think there's, there's too many universities, um, they're, they're cookie-cutter universities, they're churning out most uh, too many students with useless degrees. We need to pare that back completely. Um, there's... Not everybody needs to go to let's, university. Let's, let's seize this opportunity. Mm. And, and in that sense, and in that sense, the thing to dwell a bit here, the thing that um, is very poorly understood, I think, is the rise of mass higher education. So that's both um, the um, growth in degrees for things that previously didn't have degrees, like nursing degrees and and so forth. Um, teaching degrees as well. Course. Teaching teaching degrees, but it's also just the the um, the fact that now a much larger percentage of the population goes through the university system. Now, that is demanded by industry, right? So that is not entirely because of government policy. That is um, uh, a more competitive labour market over time, demands higher skills. We're a much higher skilled economy. We demand better qualifications and credentialing and all that sort of thing. So that's that, that that's welcome in, in, in many ways. But I don't think our ideas about what education is supposed to do have really advanced much much past what we how we thought about them in the 1960s and 1970s. I know the universities are thinking very deeply about that, but from a public policy perspective, um, from the perspective of the education department, I think they're a bit at sea about why it is that we fund education in the first place. And and the TN reforms are a really interesting example of how um, a lack of clarity about that can just end up with just, well, it's not bizarre consequences, it's just the opposite consequences that was yeah. intended. Would, would a solution not just be go back to the idea that you, you go straight to um, into the workplace to learn the the, <laughs> the, the skill that you need to, to become? You, that they well, used to, they used to learn, they, they used to do that. You'd go into a legal <laughs> firm <laughs> as a junior and you'd become a lawyer. You'd bypass universities altogether, same for... Same for for nurses. You just go straight straight into the hospital. Same for for teachers. But universities aren't going to want this, are they? Because that's a huge in, loss. No, but it, but in in practice, you do that, right? So um, uh, we may have talked about it on the podcast already. But um, uh, the Brian Kaplan argument about um, uh, education as a signalling device. So in practice, when you get into the workforce, that's when a lot of your learning about how to do your job actually occurs. Yes, but you can't get into the workforce without a degree, yeah, and most of the degrees are useless. Years. So what they need to, what the companies need to change their hiring policies and say, you look, you know, 
come up with their own um, entrance exams or testing or something and pick the people, bypass university altogether. Yes, they don't, they yeah. don't need to go to Yeah, university. I mean, you're right about the lack of clarity, Chris, but, um, I mean, Menzies, when he when he funded the universities, um, explicitly rejected the Oxbridge model and wanted more of a Scottish vocational model. But, of course, vocational for him meant, um, you know, the professions. He wasn't thinking about nursing, um, all these kinds of things. Mm. Um, so that's, that, yeah, so there's a whole bunch of issues there. And uh, I commend to anyone, uh, speaking of Brian Kaplan, um, we did interview Brian um, uh, some months ago for his book uh, Cracks in the Ivory Tower, which is um, a terrific podcast as well. Um, but speaking of the outcomes of um, second-rate graduates from second-rate universities, cancel culture has now taken over the world um, where there's lots of examples. The one that for me um, I found fascinating was uh, J.K. Rowling uh, when she dared to uh, intervene in the... Uh, uh, issues about uh, um, uh, children are being treated for gender dysphoria. Um, there was uh, what was unleashed in social media was something to behold, and it was just lucky for her that she's a billionaire and doesn't actually care what they think. But um, what do ordinary people do, Chris? What's going on with cancel culture? <laughs> uh, that's right, and and I think we made this point in the last podcast, but uh, again, it bears reminding us that a protest movement that started with a protest against police violence and the killing of a man um, is now the result of that seems to be taking down episodes of 30 Rock um, and episodes of Community and the Golden Girls. So we were talking about this before um, we started recording, Scott, and and we, um, we've got in the last couple of weeks just a sequence of what everybody's describing as cancellations. Um, some of those are cancellations of companies. So um, the colonial beer, for instance, in, in Australia, um, is being taken off the shelves in some bottle shops. Um, Gone with the Wind, the 1939 movie is being taken down, um, as I mentioned, Community, 30 Rock, Golden Girls episodes that um, uh, offend the, the modern sensibility have now been taken down. But at the same time, there's also, as you point out, the cancellation, cancellation, cancellation of um, individuals. So um, some of those are incredibly wealthy individuals, J.K. Rowling, um, who is the world's first billion-dollar author or something like that. But then there are other people who are certainly not in the same um, economic privilege that J.K. Rowling might be. And I wonder how you think about whether there's something interesting in this difference, right? Is there something... Uh, do, why are we worried about cancellation? Are we worried about cancellation because it has... Um, it is a change in cultural norms that things that were acceptable on television less than a decade ago are now not acceptable. Or are we worried, and I think this is your view, Scott, are we more worried about the the, the unheralded victims, the, the people who might be sacked from their less important job? Or is this just the same thing, right? Are we worried about the culture or are we worried about the victims? Um, well, I'm... I'm I'll tell you how I'm, I'm thinking about this. I've been, uh, as I said on the last episode, I've been reading um, uh, Hilary Mantel, um, uh, book, uh, The Mirror and the Light, about Henry VIII um, and Thomas Cromwell and uh, that age of uh, the the English Reformation or the beginnings of the effort. This feels medieval. I guess I'm, I'm quite apart from the direction of cancel culture, um, because, you know, I guess sometimes it, it can run both ways. I mean, the, the cultural left has the ascendancy, so it's almost in, 
almost always against um, uh, those who question notions of white privilege and, and systemic racism, uh, or, or, or the um, or the you know absolutism around uh, transgender rights. Say, uh, it can cope both ways. Uh, for me, it's probably mostly that I worry about the health of the culture. Um, that it's all, almost medieval because, you know, the, what I've been reading in this book uh, brings to mind that era of, um, you know, hunting down icons in, in, uh, in this case, the Protestants were hunting down the icons in Catholic churches, um, but then, you know, the, the devotees of the old religion were hunting down the heretics and, and beating the crap out of them on London streets. So it's, you know, it just feels like this, this kind of witch hunt that's going on, and it's it's the it's the joy uh, of the hunt, and the joy of the persecution, and the and the feelings of solidarity it engenders amongst uh, these these culture warriors. That that's probably worries me just as much as it does um, uh, anything else. And then, of course, you know it's it's terrible for free speech, and and it's one thing to be shouted down on Twitter; it's another to lose your bloody job. Well, yes. So I agree. I agree in part with you, Scott. It's um, it's not really medieval. I think it's more, to be very pedantic, <laughs> early modern I, I Reformation. Defer, I defer. The <laughs> Reformation Puritanical movement that. If you want to take the, the next ten the, minutes to really the, talk us through that. Um, so, <laughs> oh, that so great. that so Catholicism never believed in witches. It never did the witch hunt. It never did that. You know, if she drowns, if she drowns, she was innocent. If she survived, she's a witch. Um, it, it was very um, anti that kind of superstitious thing. And do you the, know? Do you know any good PhD theses we could read? Um, on this topic no, more? I don't actually. No, I don't think anyone <laughs> talks about this anymore. Um, so it's it's you know I, it's it, this is I'm not surprised that this cancel culture has is has come to the fore now. It's been lurking in the background for such a long time. And we've seen things like you know remember Count Dank Dankula who taught his pug to do the Nazi salute and of course he was almost destroyed overnight you know he's he's fought back but this is not this is not anything new it's just now entering into our living rooms you know, Netflix faulty towers um, uh, and things that we've we might or might not find funny, but it doesn't mean that we we need to cancel them. Chris Lilly. Chris Lilly. You know, is he funny sometimes? But there is a place for him. Some, there's a place for all of this. And, you know, the Ricky Gervais has, has has managed to survive all this as well. But it's it's a puritanical movement, and it's 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 a for me it's a substitute for um, religion, and it's it's this virtue signalling, this empty virtue signalling. All you need to do is you you need to say that you're part of that. Um, that new religion, but you actually don't need to act on it. It's it's the virtue used to be hidden, and it used to be something that you did in your private life, um, and now it's public, but it's empty and it's meaningless. I want to I, I want to dwell on um, your point, Scott, because I think the the, the word cancelled or cancellation culture or cancel culture is basically an internet meme, right? And it is being thrown around so wildly that um, I don't think we. Uh, it, it's actually quite hard to grasp precisely what's going on here. And I just want to compare two examples um, which are strikingly different in results, even if they look similar, slightly the same. So um, the first one is the comedian Josh Thomas, who um, the Australian comedian Josh Thomas uh, made some comments in 2016 that were recently, quote, resurfaced about casting um, Indian actors as workers in a 7-Eleven and pointed out that he wasn't sure where to go. He's trying to be as open-minded and socially just as he can be, and he wasn't sure whether to 
whether it was a good thing or a bad thing to put an Indian actor. Would it be denying an Indiana, Indian actor work if he was not to um, uh, cast him as a 7-Eleven worker or um, would it be um, excessively stereotypical if he was to do so anyway? So he talks about this on stage and he gets, quote, cancelled. Now, as far as I can tell, that's just yelled at a lot on the internet for which he apologised. Compare that, however, to this just extraordinary piece published in the Washington Post a, um, a week or two ago about a blackface incident at the Washington at a Washington Post cartoonist's Halloween party in 2018 that is again, quote, resurfaced. I'm going to quote from the article here. Nearly two years later, the incident, which has bothered some people ever since, but many, which many guests remember only barely and not at all, has resurfaced <laughs> in the nationwide reckoning over race. So this person turned up in an ironic blackface costume. It was actually uh, ridiculing Megan Kelly, saying that blackface was not as offensive as um, uh, everybody seemed to believe. Um, so she's dressed as Megan Kelly in blackface. Now, poor taste, right? Poor taste. Mm -hmm. No one disagrees it's poor taste. But there is this 3,000-word column about a non-public figure. This is just a friend of a friend at a cartoonist's party, Halloween party, who immediately apologised after, who, according to the article, spent hours in therapy about how, quote, carelessly they behaved and is deeply ashamed. And when the article was written was immediately fired from her job. Good, for hosting the party. No, for being no, at no, the no, party. No. She was at the this party is, uh, in the, the wrong costume. The yeah, friend of a friend I, 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 yeah, the one, yeah, two yeah, years yeah, previously. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Now, I think that is, that, to your point, that is an insane victimisation of someone who is obviously has spent the last two years deeply embarrassed and shameful and has apologised about behaviour but it is important, apparently, for the national media in the United States to hunt this woman down and uh, get her job, um, uh, have her lose her job. This is the witch hunt that we're. This is the witch hunt that we're talking about. This is the, you know, going back, and and finding people to persecute before yeah. they get you. And then the public to humiliation. Show how, to, yeah, it's a public humiliation to show how 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 virtuous and how perfect and pure you are. You pick someone from from a party from two years ago. It's terrifying that that, that they, they can do this and that everyone will just... And that she should never apologise. They should never apologise. You shouldn't apologise well, to them. In this, in this case, of course, she apologised for the original offence of the incident, as far as the, the story is concerned, then spent ages in therapy trying to understand all the embarrassment that she caused. And that's all completely legitimate. It was obviously found by the members of the party as a very offensive costume. But there's this idea that we need to air this stuff in public, that we need to hunt down people, even if they are already ashamed, already apologetic, as part of, quote, a nationwide reckoning over race. Hey. Now, to, to think about, and, and, and Bella, you'll actually know more about this than I, but I mean, so much of the witch hunts were using a, quote, accusation of being a witch as a cover for sort of base interpersonal politics yeah people, and, yeah um, exactly uh using you are a witch because you know uh, the witch finder uh, general you've, yeah you've been yeah. you've offended my my yeah. husband's second yeah. wife or something yes. like that yeah. i've never really um, liked you so this is a perfect and, opportunity to bring you down and in that sense it's sort of you're, this you're is just a too attractive <laughs> yeah you're just too pretty <laughs> yeah this is a big contest within the elites trying to hit each other with the tools 
that they have. And they, they never think they're going to be the ones that, that are brought down either. So, you know, J.K. Rowling, for example, would never have imagined, I think, that her creations would turn on her. The the Harry Potter creations, the, those um, Emma, Emma Watson and... Daniel Radcliffe. Daniel Radcliffe, yeah. turning on the, the very hand that, that feeds them, that fed them, that mm. created them. She never would have imagined that. Yeah, ungrateful is, is there Is there an environment in our current... Is there a chance in our current environment that we could return to a, um, I don't know, just a, a calmer perspective on A, people making mistakes and B, people just having different views? There's, yep. there's this idea that, you know, in, in communities, in non-internet communities, even families or just even employment, some people can be dismissed as an odd duck if they say strange things or have strange views. That no longer seems to be possible in the age of, of social media. Or alternatively, is it a, is it a question of, of power, Bella? Uh, do you actually have to fight back? I mean, is yeah, it, so you have to fight back like so, Lawrence so, Fox. So, so I, you know, Chris, I hear your plea for understanding and patience and time <laughs> and, and space. But or is it or is it if it is a power game? Because you just said it's a power game it's between all these. Not really the zeitgeist is what you're saying. No, I think you have to fight back. <laughs> And you need mm -hmm. more people. Um, and I keep talking about Lawrence Fox because he's he's so he's, he's the actor. He's in the, the actor UK. in the UK who uh, appeared on the BBC uh, about six months ago, Question Time, and suggested that Meghan Markle might have left the country for other reasons other than racism. Um, and of course, he was completely shouted down. And he just he was very exasperated on television and 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 called into question the the, the existence of um, white male patriarchy. Um, and ever since then, he's he's. Um, He's been fighting and he's, I saw him being interviewed on The Outsiders on Sunday and he's basically saying, look, he's, he doesn't know, he has no job security anymore. He's not, mm. that's it. But he's heroic and we need more, we, we need more of that kind of and heroism this is, and, and this courage. And this is Toby Young's program. Yes. The, the, the uh, call it editor, Toby, former Spectator Australia, uh, Spectator editor, yes, Toby Young. Yes, and editor of Quillette, yep. a co-editor of Quillette. So he started the um, Free Speech Union um, which is which is precisely this, which is gathering people from all over the world who who have had enough and who are who are now fighting back. And this is a good sign. This is a very good sign because we didn't have this three years ago. So yeah. things have to get to a certain point until until yeah. individuals step up. And at the most basic level, it's about social solidarity, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, you, but you, you know what? That social social uh, social solidarity has to be involved as well. I just dwelling on this Halloween party incident, which has still infuriated me since I first heard about it. Um, I think that the criticism has to be levied not just at the Washington Post for chasing this down, but for the company that fired this person. I think we, in, I mean, imagine, imagine if there was a group of working people who got together, let's call it a union who fought for workers' rights and that sort of thing. Um, uh, but imagine if the environment was such that to punish someone, punish an employee, for something irrelevant to their working um, experience, um, to 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 punish them for doing something like that and being apologetic about it was to sh uh, was was out of bounds. Was itself an offence? I think that's the environment that we have to get out of because you have to worry about. In any of us have to worry about will our institutions back us if suddenly we're attacked in the Washington Post. But Chris, we know we know they won't because we've just talked about how the universities fill fill these roles with um, 
misguided and and delusional humanities graduates who believe that this is reality and this is their this is their purpose. This is the purpose of the company. Not but it's simultaneously, not- we know that they're also very sensitive to public opinion. And and this is a big thing of what's going on at the moment. But I think they think public opinion is on their side. I think this is how how much they're in the bubble. They think everyone believes that. They think these they, they think they these people are wrong and they should be they should be given given the boot. Which is always yeah. the power of militant minorities. Yes, because so, they don't read anything else. They don't hear any mm-hmm. other opinions. They, this is it. This is what they, they this is this is their worldview. So the first thing you've got to do is create noise in that marketplace so that people people understand yes, that, this, exactly. that, that this is just a militant and moderately insane which is minority what, for the Which is what part. happened in, in Western Australia. People flocked to the shelves uh, and started buying co- colonial beer. Another, Chris, um, sorry, this slightly off topic, but it is the New York Times. There it is. is. This is the same New York Times. So to, I was reading uh, Tyler Cowan, the economist, mentioned this. He actually writes, writes for them, I think, and um, likes the New York Times. But he pointed I'd be, out... I've been quoted in the New York Times. Oh, very good. So <laughs> he said, I'm not against the New York Times, but he said, this is the same newspaper that just ran a story about the woman who shot Andy Warhol and said she shouldn't just be famous for shooting Andy Warhol. She was, in fact, just a, you know, a pioneering feminist. What she had actually uh, that, said in yeah. the late 60s as a pioneering feminist was all men should be killed... <laughs> And not only had she written that, she'd obviously started she to do it. <laughs> and uh, apparently uh, at one point she did allow that, well, maybe they don't all have to be killed if they could just be castrated. Less like men. Yes, yeah. no, literally. No, <laughs> literally, no, not men. No, we're not operating in metaphorical territory <laughs> oh, yeah. here. Like this is, Physically less this, like men. This is absolutely off-the-wall crazy. Warhol wasn't the only person she tried to kill. But the New York Times... This is like a reverse cancel yeah. culture. Mm. So who, racism, who knew, sexism... Who knew but... that someone who wrote the Society for Cutting Up Men manifesto could be potentially violent? Um, <laughs> it's like saying, and, and, it's like saying and, the, and, the Unabomber had some good ideas about artificial intelligence. <laughs> yeah. Look, so, so I mean, that, that, that is an interesting example because um, uh, it's part of a series that the New York Times... So New York Times and Washington Post, the blackface um, piece was done in the Washington Post. But the New York Times has been doing this series of obituaries... Um, for people who have long passed but didn't get obituaries in, in due course. And, and, and many of these in the series have been really valuable, right? So, um, you know, women air pilots, uh, black women air pilots in the, um, in the Second World War, all, all very virtuous um, uh, things. But then it's, it, 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 it <laughs> casts its net so wide that there, there are manifest absurdities like, well, you know, the Unabomber was an environmentalist, right? You know, are we suddenly going to have a beautiful reminiscence of the Unabomber's contribution? He had a lovely, lovely cabin thought. in the woods indicating his, his dedication to nature. Um, and, and in that sense, it's, it's a good example of the cultural moment being very ungrounded and unclear about its own revolutionary potential how much of it is trying to integrate the um integrate more perspectives into an existing liberal order and how much of it is trying to completely overturn that order because unheralded people obituaries is a great thing to do i I think that's a really and the most of the people that they've honored are very honorable and worthy (laughs) people who were not who do were but, not, but then, who were not determined to kill every man. Then, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, when we're unmoored from our moral foundations, 
Bell. Unmoored from our liberal foundation. Pat, I think Pat, we're Pat, unmoored Pat. from Western civilization. Yeah, so perhaps right. what we need, Bella, is for the IPA to initiate a podcast. Funny you should mention that, Scott. In which somehow through talking to someone very much learned in that tradition mm. um, and a great believer in the literature of that tradition, we might actually help people find their way back to their heritage, to the ideas that have sustained us for so many thousands of years and rediscover that moral compass. Just Another saying hypothetically. Exactly. Good segue. Um, and how, <laughs> how do you think the, the title Five Favourite Books would, would suit this type of podcast? That sounds like a terrific <laughs> idea. Who, do you, who should we get to host that, Bella? Oh, I think um, perhaps me. Okay. Five <laughs> Favourite Books with Bella Debrera. Yes, is... which is now a reality, which is going to be a reality very shortly. Um, so, you know, in this, in this uh, current culture of cancellation, um, which is just terrible really and people come out with lists of things that you shouldn't do and shouldn't read and shouldn't watch and shouldn't drink we're doing the opposite we're coming out with lists of things that you books that you should read books from the the western canon a very unfashionable thing to talk about but um but very very necessary and so i'm starting a new podcast uh we're launching on uh friday this friday the third of july um it's an exclusive podcast for members it's called five favorite books with mm. Dr. Bella Debrera. Um, and um, I'm very excited because um, my first guest is Greg Sheridan, who um, was just, uh, I hate the, the word use awesome, but he was absolutely awesome to talk to. Yes. Um, I mean, for anyone who, who uh, most people, uh, I'm sure everyone will know Greg as uh, foreign affairs. Foreign affairs editor uh, of the Australian. Of the Australian. But of course, he writes uh, a lot of oh, stuff. Oh, he's prolific. All over yeah. the um, uh, the Australian uh, on culture, on religion. Yes. Uh, his book uh, on God. Yes. Uh, forgive me if I've. I've temporarily. Something, something, God, well. something, something. <laughs> Sorry, Greg. <laughs> Sorry, Greg. Um, he's written so many. Yeah. Um, he's he's actually a, he's a Renaissance man. He's a he's a modern. It's good for you guys. God a, is good for you. God is his. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> um, uh, yes, he's a Renaissance man, and um, uh, actually, I've seen his library because we went to. Um, before coronavirus lockdown, we were going to film the podcast in his library, which is incredible and extensive and reflects his erudition and his knowledge and his um, ability to 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 remember details about books. And so we um, I gave him the task of, of coming up with his top five favorite books, which have been really important in his life and really influential. And he did a lot of thinking because obviously he's read a lot mm. and he has a lot of five favorite books. So we came up with this list and we've um, recorded five fascinating conversations about each book. Um, I had to read most of them. I'd only read one of them before. Um, and um, it, he was an absolute joy to talk to. And it really was a great experience for me because it forced me to read books that, that I would never normally pick up. And it has broadened my knowledge, even just, you know, five conversations. So the first book we talked about was um, The Era of Living Dangerously by Andrew Koch. Uh, sorry, Christopher Koch. Yeah. Christopher Koch, um, which was a, just a which is a great novel, and I think Scott, you've read it. And um, uh, I can't say I've read it, but oh, I have, I have seen, it, the, seen the uh, the Mel Gibson, uh, Linda Hunt film. Yes. Uh, directed by um, Peter Weir. Peter Weir. Uh, which is a great Australian classic. Um, back in the days when they made Australian movies, which didn't involve people dying of heroin overdoses, um, and actually told <laughs> real stories. Yeah. In, so, in the suburbs, dying of heroin. This was not. Yeah. This was a. This was a the political coup in the in in Jakarta in the 1960s against yeah. Sukarno, which is again. Um, I, I had little knowledge about the historical um, context, so it forced me to learn about that and um, and and Greg's Greg's great. He was so easy to talk to and um, and 
brilliantly for us, he's actually writing a piece for um, the Australian Enquirer for the weekend of the 11th of July. And he's, um, I'm really excited to see what he has to what he has to say about the podcast. No, so this is terrific. So so for a very long time, this will be, or a significant amount of period of time, this is exclusive to members. Yes. So, so if you're not already a member of the IPA, please do go to ipa.org.au. Uh, you'll certainly see information about how to join um, and uh, most likely on that website by the time this podcast goes live, you'll also see information about um, uh, this uh, Five Favourite Books with Greg Sheridan series and uh which will be an on, ongoing series yes Bella, greg is the first of many guests indeed and uh so and just briefly the the other books um so we have all the other book, authors so um evelyn war sort of on a trilogy yep. um a book called my antonia by willa cather who i'm ashamed to say i hadn't heard of until the podcast she's an american author from the late 19th century M- wonderful book um we also have leave it to smith which is uh, woodhouse and uh, finally, G.K. Chesterton's autobiography, which was a, a serious note to end on. But still, you know, Chesterton has humour and he even manages to insert humour in a book on metaphysics. Yeah, he certainly, uh, Greg does quote him a fair quote, bit. Qu- qu- Greg is very <laughs> Chestertonian, very Woodhouse. Greg makes sense once you listen to these podcasts. He yeah. makes much more sense. And I can see now when I read his articles, I can see the influences of Woodhouse and Chesterton and, and war. Um, mm. So they really have, have shaped his life. No, terrific. And um, uh, War's the only one of, of those I've read. Um, Scoop. Scoop, yes. Yeah, yeah, ter- yeah. terrific satire on uh, foreign correspondence and British newspapers. Mm. Um, uh, uh, Lord Beaverbrook, I think. Anyway, no, I, I digress. Uh, no, I can't wait for that one, Bella. And, yeah, I'm really excited. And then the whole, the whole series, as you say, it's a positive agenda. Mm. Um, we can talk about cancel culture and, and, and what's being done to run down... Uh, the uh, the heritage of our uh, civilization and our literature and can cancel literally cancel books. It's our legacy. We should uh, be talking about it. So we have to get on the front foot, and <coughs> uh, and if nobody else is going to do it, we'll we'll do it. Mm. We'll bring it back into the conversation. We're doing it with uh, young people through the Generation Liberty Book Club. Yes, uh, which you've you've also leaned into. Thank you so much. Um, terrific work uh, by uh, Renee and Theodore and others. Burke. Yeah, I might make the I might make the point there though. Um, so it is well and good to criticise the higher education sector, but um, it is also simultaneously really important to recognise all the work that's going on outside that for people who aren't in the market for a degree necessarily, maybe in a different stage in their career, different stage in their life um, and the accessibility of knowledge about Western civilization is um, stronger now than it ever was before in history. You can do these wonderful great courses series. You can do these wonderful um, there the podcasts like um, what Bella's been doing, what John Roscombe did with um, Andrew Bolt in the um, Books of Literature series uh, last year or the year before. Um, those sorts of things, the accessibility of this material is really extraordinary. And I sometimes think that we don't recognize how much has changed, how much um, rather than having to get a, um, a, a a paper catalog and email or, or not email, right away for um, some cassette tapes of yes. an audiobook or a lecture series, you can just pick it up instantaneously on your mobile phone, on your computer. You can listen to it while you're cooking you can listen to it while you're vacuuming. You can, um, ex- you. We now have access to such an extraordinary wealth of the legacy of Western civilization. 
um, you can pick up Aristotle's works for free on the internet, which you can pop onto your Kindle or your phone, and you can read it at your leisure whenever you want. Now, that is an extraordinary Thing. Indeed, and or or indeed, or indeed, the Library of Economics and Liberty, by uh, sponsored well, by the Liberty Fund. That, yeah, that, that's right. And and I think a big part of people who care about Western civilization and the legacy of Western civilization has to be encouraging people to access that incredible wealth of knowledge and insight. Um, and and that's a big role that I'm, I'm really excited to listen to the podcast, Bella, because I haven't listened to it yet. Um, that's a big role that civil society organisations, um, people, or really just anybody who cares about Western Civ um, can play. What a lovely note to finish on. Yes, thank you, Chris. Thank you, thank you Scott. <laughs> Very I, good. I, I thought it landed a beautiful point. Yeah, uh, terrific. Uh, Chris, you've been reading John Bolton's uh, memoirs on his time in the White House and reflections on uh, President Trump. Yeah, which is a bit embarrassing after I gave that that beautiful pay on to the values of Western civilization and the need for culture, because I've been reading John Bolton's The Room Where It Happened, and the first thing I'll say is that it is not a great work of art. It is not a literally a literary um, a piece of literary genius. Obviously, listeners are well familiar, um, having seen the last couple of weeks of American political debate about some of the um, claims that John Bolton makes um the book itself is really strange just just remind me what he was national security no, advisor so john bolton was the national security advisor yep. um under donald trump for about 18 months or something. and he'd also worked for george w so he, he worked for george w he's got this long neocon um, history sort of he's not technically a neocon but he's he's a he's a foreign policy realist in the kissinger style um, which so so in that story he's pro invading Iraq but he's not pro invading everything because that's not in America's national interest. Now, you might say, well, how do we know what's in America's national interest? But you know that's that's for realists to deal with. Um, the book itself is basically a diary, and it goes day by day, meeting by meeting, because it's based off all this. Apparently, it takes these extensive. Um, notes on a yellow pad about everything that everyone says to each other. So you can imagine him in the White House, in the Situation Room, just constantly scribbling, scribbling, scribbling what everybody says. That is what the experience of reading the book is. Um, I would have killed for this book if they'd done it for some of the things that my my history research is, because it's such an extraordinary resource and source. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so anyway, the, the reason that it's... Um, uh, so controversial is not because it's an incredibly deep dive into daily meeting structures, but because of some of the many uh, the many claims that he makes about Donald Trump's, what he views as Donald Trump's unfitness to be president. Um, one of the big things that um, I think really came out of it was the Trump relationship with China. Um, I don't want to get into the weeds about the accusations made in the book, um, because we'll all have different views about that. But what did struck me strike me is that I'm increasingly convinced that we're entering a a Cold War frame with China. I've been skeptical of that framing for a long time, but it's very clear now, as the, uh, as, particularly as geopolitics changes during COVID, that we're increasingly on a Cold War footing with them, um, or at least something that looks quite parallel to what we experienced with the Soviet Union. Um, that's not good. Uh, that's, in fact, deeply concerning, and it is very different environment, particularly the economic links. But in the middle of this Cold War environment, the Trump administration, according to um, uh, John Bolton, at least Donald Trump's main interest is ensuring that China buys soybeans from swing states. 
rather than that sort of broad-based, what you would expect in a Cold War environment, which is getting the allies together, presenting a uniting front, a united front against um, uh, against the geopolitical um, rival. Now, I'm now we're going to learn a lot more about the Trump administration um, because every single person who has worked for it seems to be writing a book and collating all that information will get us to a better picture. But I just think about the environment that we're in geopolitically, and I am pretty worried that the um, administration, or at least the president, is not doing what need, not meeting that challenge. Yeah, well, it's, um, I read, I've only read the excerpt that was in the Australian Financial Review, which was mainly reflecting on just, you know, Trump as as, as uh, you know, the, the manager of his staff. And um, uh, and at one level, it, everything he says by way of criticism would also um, would, would sit quite happily with Trump's supporters. So, you know, Trump, for instance, wouldn't, wouldn't come down uh, downstairs to start his meetings until about lunchtime because he'd been on the phone all morning to God knows whom doing God knows what and no one really knew. And, of course, you know, he fires people that he gets sick of and he, he doesn't stick to meeting agendas and he, and he, um, and he rants on, you know, whoever he's um, got difficulties with that day regardless of the topic of the meeting or who he's with and he's setting people against each other and, he's, you know, he'll, he'll ask, you know, each of them what they think about the other ones and which encourages sort of backstabbing and so on. Um, but, of course, if you're a Trump supporter, you'd say, well, good, you know, they're all terrible and they all deserve to be shaken up. Uh, but I must admit, it, the Cold War context for me was just the executive function of the presidency um, and is that actually sustainable in the long run, which was sort of Bolton's point. Uh, you know, if you're not actually going to sit down and have a briefing about what's going on in the world... Um, how can you ever make decisions? And, you know, Biden worries me just as much because I don't know how many brain cells that guy's got left if he actually makes it into the White House. Um, and, and the thing about, you know, the, the saying that he was worried about the sorghum farmers in the trade deal with China was not so much that he was thinking it because, you know, Nixon would have thought that, lots of politics, Bill Clinton would have thought that, but I, I can't think of any other president who would have actually said it in a meeting with the Chinese. I mean, that that was the bit about that revelation that got me. Uh, yeah, and, and in that sense, if, if this is a conversation about um, sort of is it a messy administrative process, is it very strange diplomatic, uh, you know, that's that, that's an interesting conversation and we can be comparative. It does, it does strike me that one piece that I remember very clearly from the Barack Obama years was a piece in the New Yorker that um, described the federal government as basically unmanageable because it was too large, it had too many different functions, too many departments, too many regulatory agencies, too much money. Um, the Defense Department was too big, and and the the, the framing of this book uh, of this piece was it's unmanageable. You could never do it from the White House. Now, that's a really nice way to apologise for what appears to be Barack Obama failing to manage <laughs> from the White House. And I have noted that we don't see many pieces in the New Yorker now about the unmanageable size of the federal government now that Donald Trump is um, uh, is the president. So there's a lot of uh, pairing through those partisan things um, is complicated and, and, and is fraught with difficulty. But I am pretty concerned about the geopolitical environment of either Biden's first term or Donald Trump's second term, given the um, given the mess that we seem to be in 
um, uh, when you combine these geopolitical challenges with a global pandemic that, that you know, Scott, we've gotten through most of this conversation without talking much about the coronavirus, which is great. Mm. Um, uh, but but I am concerned about what that looks like in, in the next 12, 20 yeah. months. Yeah, and of course, in that wonderful American system where you're elected in November, but you don't take office until January 20th, a lot can happen That's in right. that time. And, and, yeah. And China, and China maybe, can do a lot in that time. <laughs> maybe think about what the geopolitical, you know, what is the one thing that you will remember from this time? And it might be the loss of Hong Kong as a free state. Um, uh, and, and you know, Taiwan is the only bulwark of, of free China against uh, the Chinese mainland. That's a, that is a, that is just a terrible, terrible outcome from human liberties, from geopolitics, from economic freedom, from just a wealth of perspectives. Yep. So the realists, Actually, the yeah, the realist school of foreign policy does have something to commend it. Um, I have a I have a um, a Trumpish book to talk about. So, Bella, let's let's um, interpolate yours. I think yeah, just to break it up a bit. It's actually easy to interpolate because it's set in the Cold War. Oh, the like the previous yeah, the Cold previous War. Cold War, um, not the hopefully the one that we're <laughs> entering into. Um, so, it's a wonderful book called um, "The Spy and the Traitor" by Ben McIntyre. And he's he's a great um, historian and. As you mentioned in the intro, he he specialises in stories of spies and just amazing stories from Second World War, First World War. And I remember reading a few of his novels a few years ago. Um, this one is about um, Oleg Gordievsky, who was born into a KGB family, destined for a, for, for a really senior position in the KGB, got there, but also had a transformation halfway sort of – actually, in the early stages of his career, he started thinking – started looking at the West and started doubting the way – um, uh, the, the the communist state ran, um, and he ended up being um, transferred to London as a, you know, for the KGB, but then working for actually being a double agent. Um, and he was a favourite of Margaret Thatcher's, who never met him but called him Mr. Collins for some completely unknown reason. And she was party <laughs> to all his um, all his files and 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 really followed him really closely. And he was loved by. Um, by the the British because he was the opposite to Philby. He went the other direction. Mm. He was a wonderful um, sort of um, balm to 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 what had happened previously with with those Cambridge spies. Um, and it's an amazing story. And I, I must admit I haven't finished it yet, but it's completely gripping. And one of the other details that has that I that is unforgettable is that the KGB thought that the blood bank in the in in the UK was literally a blood bank where people gave blood and they were paid for their blood because they assumed that um, the West was so capitalist mm. that people wouldn't give their blood for free. So some of the instructions were to the to the agents in London, there were very few by the 70s anyway, in 80s, go to the blood banks and find out how much blood is, because we want this information. Because um, they were preparing, they really were preparing for a Cold War. They really mm. thought there was going to be one. Um, so it's a fascinating book, and gosh, that that he was an incredible character, and, and he's still alive, and this is how Ben... Really? Yeah, he wrote, his, he wrote everything down... Um, he he had a prodigious memory. He never wrote. He he could rem he remembered all his conversations. He remembered um, whole files. He had a photographic memory. So he would go then to his handlers in London and report. Be able to just tell them everything without writing anything down. He was incredible. And and this he wasn't like captured, tortured. He was anyone? captured. Oh yes, but um, was rescued by the Brits. Brit what, what, back what, to London. One of those trades. Yeah, you know, incredible. You know, Absolutely at, at incredible night on story. that bridge in Berlin where, they, was, where they do the trades. Or was it? Yeah, I, I haven't got to that bit there, oh, but okay. I, know, I know he's captured, yeah. but I know that he also survives because, you know, he lives to tell the tale and apparently he's a bit of a, of a, of a difficult character, but um, nonetheless, really fascinating and, and so recent. I'll, uh, you know, this 
Yeah. 70s and 80s. Yeah, no, terrific. And, um, yeah, there was that, always that story out of... Out of we talked about this, uh, didn't we, Chris, uh, with Chernobyl, that um, the KGB uh, was often the agency um, uh, that was uh, at the cusp of disillusionment because they had the best access to information. Mm. They were the only yeah. ones who actually knew what was going on in the world. Mm. And then they go back to Russia and they go, God, yeah. what, a, <laughs> what a dump. This is terrible. <laughs> actually, so Oleg, what, part of his attraction for the West was was the culture that we've been talking about. He loved the music and the, and the literature and mm. would go to operas and would go to plays and read everything that there was to read and in, 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 um, really sort of um, embraced West Western I mean, Russia is Western civilization as well, mm. isn't it? But yeah, well, it had it. It, it had it, yeah, um, and it lost it. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, it's, I'd really recommend it. Ben McIntyre. Oh, fantastic! On, the, on that theme, of course, we can only but recommend the Americans, the TV show, which is basically about that challenge: um, a a pair of spies raising American children in the mm. United States. <laughs> And, 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 and they're sort of like, actually, this isn't so bad. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't want to go back. That's, that's <laughs> I don't want to go back to Russia. Um, uh, the book that I've been reading uh, is called The War for Eternity, um, The Return of Traditionalism and the Rise of the Populist Right by an academic called uh, an ethnomusicologist of all people, uh, Professor Benjamin Teitelbaum. And uh, it's, it's, it's not for everyone. This, this is... A very interesting book about an almost bizarre sort of thread of um, of thought on the right. Um, it's when it's called the return of traditionalism. This is not traditionalism as it is commonly understood. Um, people at this very table might believe in the power of tradition uh, as an animating force in society. Um, but what he's saying here is when Steve Bannon talks about tradition traditionalism, he's thinking of an actual school of thought which is um, uh, quite obscure uh, to most people. It uh, has luminaries like uh, Julius Savola um, and others who, you know, were on the fringes of, of fascist thought at different times. Uh, it's a bit of Heidegger in there and uh, it's this sort of uh, I, uh, slightly mystical as well, sort of esoteric philosophy. And uh, it's about, you know, the ages of man and uh, it's it's... You lose yourself in it, but trust me, it's it's not your normal thing. But it's very uh, for those who've been on some kind of a spiritual journey, who are obsessed with sort of the Aryan roots of uh, not just not not even necessarily white people, but the um, sort of Indo-European races. It's all absolutely strange. And and Bannon, um, you know, has acknowledged his interest in some of this. So it's not like this bloke's out to get him. He's interviewed Bannon. And as an ethnographer, he, he actually takes the approach of saying, I just want to find out about it. Like he's, he's, he clearly at one level thinks, you know, this is demented. Mm. Um, uh, but he, at the other level, he wants to talk to Bannon on his own terms. And Bannon gives him lots of time over a long period of time. And as do other luminaries like as, um, Alexander Dugan in Russia, who's this sort of, you know, um, vaguely malevolent influence on Putin and who now lives in China... Uh, and a bloke who, um, Alavo, uh, who was a former, like, set up his own um, chapter of uh, the Sufi religion in Rio before he reconverted to um, uh, some deep uh, Catholicism and now supports Bolsonaro from his shack in Virginia. Like, this, these are strange people, and, and Bannon is actually the least strange of it. And one of the things is um, it's getting some coverage as, you know, look at what a maniac... 
uh, Bannon is, but actually it's sort of almost exculpatory, exculpatory because it, it sort of says um, the European traditionalists look down on America like, the, you know, the Russians and Putin buys into all this. Like they're not a real country. They don't have a real culture. They don't have their roots in the soil. And, and Bannon says, no, no, look at the American working people. They're the salt of the earth. And this is where it sort of intersects with tradition you know you know he he totally believes it when he told trump that these are your people this is where your campaign must be Mm. based um he he absolutely meant it so i'm not sure it's as as harsh on on bannon as as some of the reviews seem to suggest um bannon's really just taken this stuff and and adapted it to his own sort of american framework but it also explains why he hates the neocons um, why, why he has no interest in, in any other country. I mean, Chris, to your point about the Cold War, you know, when Bannon says, let's stop invading other countries, it's like he literally doesn't care. You know, in the arc of history, if everything goes down in flames, well, that's their problem. All he cares about is, you know, America's spiritual base in the, in the heartland. So to the extent that they've had influence, um, it is concerning. And it also does touch on, you know, the real alt-right, you know, the the uh, the fringe of the fringe, if you like, the um, uh, the white nationalists, and that sort of you know their brief moment in the sun before everything you know, thankfully actually collapsed for them, and um, uh, Charlottesville was was the the cusp of all that. It's all covered in here. Um, as I say, it's not a book for everyone, and and you've got to be interested in this sort of traditionalism and esoteric philosophy. There's another book you can get. Uh, called Sedgwick Against the Modern World, um, which can just be downloaded from the internet, which talks about all this stuff. But there's there's a lot of crazy stuff out there and a lot of crazy people, and uh, this this book is an insight into there is, some there of how that operated. There's a point to make as well there, though, um, that the this sort of conservative um, traditionalism is a very explicit reaction or rejection of... Um, what we describe as the Anglo-American conservative classically liberal tradition of um, inalienable rights, uh, limited government, um, conservatism through a tradition that began with the British concepts of liberties and the British Bill of Rights to the American Bill of Rights and the founding of the United States. Now, that's that, that tradition is something that I find deeply appealing because it, it talks about sort of natural liberties. It talks about the um, importance of uh, individualism, um, the importance of uh, community in, in voluntary communities. But it is weird to see the debate about the post-Trump Republican future or post-Trump conservative nationalism try to figure out how to take that sort of Bannonite, and yes, you're right, that he certainly he doesn't go to that that Russian fascist style, um, but, but Bannon's clearly really interested in those ideas. How to take some of the Bannonite views about what an, uh, the American nation should be, can be, um, and try to marry it to a much more deeply rooted idea in, in, in at least American politics about um, Anglo-American liberties. Yeah, it, it, you're quite right. Actually, that's, that that said it better than I could. It was um, better than I did because, yeah, it's actually outside the founding. It's actually yeah. outside the American Constitution. 
it's it's it has no interest in in any notion of social contract or classical liberalism because all that matters is is your spiritual connection and your your role in the arc of history and whether you know the, you know we're we're heading for the end 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 times and all all this kind of you know and on occasion you know literally dancing naked around bonfires so <laughs> this is a very which, different which tradition. Sounds wonderful. Which sounds wonderful. <laughs> well, we've all been there. Um, <laughs> so that was, well, that was a heck of a books and culture segment. Um, uh, thank you, uh, colleagues, for that one. Um, this has been, uh, I've certainly found it a uh, very interesting episode of Looking Forward. I hope you have two. Remember, Looking Forward is a product of the Institute of Public Affairs. Please do, do go to ipa.org au to join or donate. If you've already donated for our end of financial year appeal, which will be closed by the time, uh, or at least the financial year is closed by the time you get this, thank you so much. Thank you to everyone who's been supporting our work. It's been another massive year, not without its challenges, thanks to COVID. Um, but, uh, but here we are, at least two out of the three members of this panel are in the studio. So uh, some things are working. I'd like to say uh, a big thank you to my co-host, Dr. Chris Berg. Thank you, Scott. Uh, to our regular guest, uh, Bella Debrera. Thank you for coming in. Thank you so much. Can't wait to uh, listen to your podcast with uh, on five favourite books with um, Greg Sheridan. Uh, thanks, as always, to uh, Josh Stranger in the in the control room. We'll be back with more. Looking forward next week. 